Hi, I'm Hari Srinivasan, an anchor and correspondent for different PBS programs like the News Hour and Amon Porn Company and Take On Fake, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. My guest tonight is an evolutionary biologist who says that mankind evolved from fish. Great. Now, not only will your grandfather order the scrod, he is the scrod. Please welcome Neil Shubin. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Neil Shubin, author of Your Inner Fish, a journey into the 3.5 billion year history of the human body and some assembly required, decoding 4 billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. You know, how did fish evolve to walk on land? What are the details of how that process happened? One colleague of mine removed a rock, saw the tip of a snout of a fish, and it just wasn't any fish. It was a fish with a flat head. And they knew if it was a fish with a flat head, it's almost certainly going to be one of the kinds of creatures we're looking for. A paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and popular science writer, Neil Shubin is best known for his 2004 co-discovery of Tiktaalik, a fish fossil that is the first evidence of so-called bridge animals with features that show the evolutionary transition between swimming fish and all other land animals. You know, just type Tiktaalik rosea in like Google, you'll see Google images. It's about four feet long. It has a flat head with eyes on top, has scales and has fins. But if you look inside the fins, what do you see? You see a bone that corresponds to our upper arm, the humerus, our forearm, the radius and ulna, even parts of wrists and digits in a fin. When he's not making the discovery of a lifetime in the Arctic, Dr. Shubin teaches comparative anatomy to medical students. You know, so I'd hang out around the dissection tables and work with them. Inevitably, they'd say, hey, Dr. Shoup, what kind of doctor? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a, I'm a fish paleontologist. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> I want my money back. <laughs> Neil guides us through a fascinating tour of the history of the human body. It becomes clear that many of the muscles and nerves and bones I'm using to talk to you with, and many of the muscles and nerves and bones you're using to hear me with right now, are originally traced to gill structures in sharks and fish. And we know that. I can produce the data. You know, it just sounds so crazy. We talk about the remarkable building blocks inside DNA that are common to all living things, which is the topic of Shubin's latest book, Some Assembly Required. A lot of biology means using the old to make the new. Neil's passion and curiosity for how nature has formed us is contagious, and it was a joy to listen to him speak of the awe and fascination he has for this amazing body of ours. Inside of us, each of us, we have history. You know, billions of years of history inside of us that connects us to other creatures. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode 12 of season three, Neil Shubin and your inner fish. What you have with Tiktaalik is an animal that's right at the cusp of the transition between life and water and life and land, the fish amphibian transition. Okay, if I used to be a fish, then I was a monkey, now I'm a man. What am I next? Could we turn ourselves back into fish? Because <laughs> I'd love I to love. be a shark. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is the soul of life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com, check out the courses, and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. Dr. Neil Shubin is a paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and popular science writer best known for his co-discovery of Tiktaalik Rosea with Ted Deschler and Ferris Jenkins in 2005, one of the most compelling so-called transition fossils that fills in important gaps in the skeletal record of evolutionary history. 
Tiktaalik is technically a fish complete with scales and gills, but has a triangular flattened head and unusual fins. Its fins have thin ray bones for padding like most fish, but they also have sturdy interior bones that would have allowed Tiktaalik to prop itself up in shallow water and use its limbs for support as most four-legged animals do. Those fins and a suite of other characteristics set Tiktaalik apart as something special. It has a combination of features that show the evolutionary transition between swimming fish and their descendants, us, the four-legged vertebrates. Neil and I are going to talk today about the rigors of fossil hunting, biologically interesting names that he's giving me to describe the life and behavior of teenagers, and what it's like to pursue something he's believed in on faith for years, but was able to confirm it with his own two eyes. Neil, Dr. Neil Shubin, how are you today? It's great to be with you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. So, uh, you know, I, I read your book and was really taken by it. Um, your Inner Fish, A Journey into the 3.5 Billion Year History of the Human Body. Great, great book. Congratulations. And congratulations, of course, on on your 2005 co-discovery. And, and I'm just curious what that's been like for you, that journey of uh, paleontology, human anatomy, and, and discovery. Well, so I, you know, it's funny when you think about it, I've been doing a couple things. I was doing a couple things at once that led to me writing Inner Fish. I mean, the first was I was teaching anatomy to medical students at the University of Chicago Medical School. You know, so I was seeing the body and our own bodies in a whole new way. You know, dissecting cadavers, teaching students about the structures. I mean, that really changes you when you see the body like that. You see the internal structures and its complexity and its beauty. You know, and the inner workings, which are which are really magnificent. You know, at the same time, I was out cracking rocks, finding fish up in the Canadian Arctic, um, which was also changing my view as well. It was showing how our bodies are connected to the rest of life on our planet, that we, we share a history with them. And then that's what the paleontology was doing. You know, so in a way, both sort of aspects of my existence were coming together. You know, the, the anatomy teacher as well as the, uh, as the paleontologist, you know, and that's how it was manifest in the, in the writing of your inner fish. Right. Now, teaching human anatomy to med students, but you're not a medical doctor. So, so help me understand that. Did, did, did even medical students, um, sometimes do a double take about, well, we're, we're you know, <laughs> Yeah. So like um, inevitably, like in the class, um, you know, the it's not first of all, I should say it's not unusual to have paleontologists and others teach anatomy, you know, so it's not completely strange. Uh, but for the medical students, it certainly was. I remember those first few weeks in the class, the, you know, we'd, I'd hang out with the students, you know, we do dissections together. It's a fairly demanding class, right? Mm. You know, these are, you imagine the stress that they're going through. You know, they're starting their careers as physicians. They're dissecting a human cadaver, facing mortality. And, and also, it's a lot of work, you know, memorizing mm. lots of names. You know, so I'd hang out around the dissection tables and work with them. Uh, and it'd be like a six hour lab twice a week, fairly intense. You know, and inevitably they'd say, Hey, Dr. Shoop, what kind of doc are you? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a, I'm a fish paleontologist. They're like, oh, I want my money back. <laughs> no, but honestly, I mean, that, that, they, they asked the question. Yeah. But it soon became clear within a few weeks that being a paleontologist, and not just any paleontologist, a fish paleontologist, it's a powerful way to teach you know, and learn human anatomy. And the reason for that is many of the best roadmaps to our own bodies lie in other creatures. You know, the best roadmaps to the complex tangle of nerves in our head, well, you can see it in simpler form in sharks. You know, the best roadmaps mm-hmm. to the fundamental structure of our brain, you can see in, you know, reptiles and things like that. So it became very clear as soon as we started to compare our bodies to other creatures. So that, that disconnect where, you know, they were looking for refunds <laughs> so right. was, soon, uh, was soon connected, you know, within a few weeks' time. Well, I mean, that makes so much sense. I mean, as somebody not in the medical profession myself, but just under, understanding, I think you're describing like the fifth cranial nerve like this or the vagus nerve, for example, something very um, important in my field in mental health and the nervous system and the brain and this uh, this wandering. Vagus, I guess, literally means wandering. Wanderer, and, and, yeah. and so you're either left with these choices looking at the human anatomy and some of the idiosyncrasies of it and how it sometimes doesn't work. <laughs> or seems to not work, but then you, it seems like when you have the view that you're looking at it with, you, you realize it's built up layer upon layer upon layer. And so these things happen, have happened for a reason. That's correct. Um, I mean, you mentioned two great nerves. So, you know, if you look at our skull inside our head, we have 12 nerves called the cranial nerves, right? And they go to the, like, I'm using them right now to talk to you. You're using them you know, to hear me. 
I mean, they are a complex jumble. You know, but when you take them apart, you see, hey, sharks have a vagus nerve. Uh, you know, the one you were just talking about. Uh, you know, they have this trigeminal nerve, which I'm using to talk to you with right now, facial nerve, and all these others. And you can map them out in much simpler form um, in, in these other creatures. And it shows that connection so beautifully. You know, I love to say to students is when you look at developmental biology and paleontology and anatomy and compare people to sharks and fish and other things, it becomes clear that many of the muscles and nerves and bones I'm using to talk to you with. And many of the muscles and nerves and bones you're using to hear me with right now are originally traced to gill structures in sharks and fish. And we know that. I can produce the data. You know, it just sounds so crazy. But that's what's fun about it. It sounds at first like, what? Just like, you know, me teaching anatomy. But then when you layer on all the evidence, what you see is inside of us, each of us, we have history. You know, billions of years of history inside of us that connects us to other creatures. Beautiful thing. It is beautiful to me and, 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 uh, to many others, I think. Um, we just had the emergence of the 17 year brute X cicadas in Maryland. These creatures who have been buried in the ground as larvae for 17 years and they emerge, um, in unison at the same time. And, uh, my son and I were talking about this and, and we, we had to, you know, we had a little bet going on. We were like, let's fi- try to figure out, like, between the two of us, why is it 17 years and how did they, how did this particular species uh, as a species agree or collectively communicate with each other to come out at the same time over 17 years. And we, we talked it through and we sort of came up with this theory that, and I'm not sure how much you know about it, insects and entomology, but imagine more than me, we said, it's got to be something to do. Well, the other years just didn't work out. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's true, but I, when you said it's sort of beautiful like that, I, these insects, which some people were very dis- disgusted by, obviously, when you're crunching on them for, for, for weeks. Yeah, um, that can, that can do it. Yeah. That can do <laughs> that it. That can definitely do it. But it's beautiful. These, these ancient creatures and come to find out we have, we ourselves are ancient. When you also see these ties even more generally, you know, I'm here right now on the, on the bay and I'm watching the tidal rhythms. And you see just how life ebbs and flows with the tide. So you have the, the lunar cycle, which is connected to the cycle of the, of the water moving back and forth. And it's connected to the cycle of the crabs and the birds and the other creatures and the people who do the shell fishing. You know, what you start to see is cycle upon cycle that are interconnected to one another. In this case, it's the physical with, you know, you know, the moon and the earth and the tides, which connects to life and behavior and so forth. But we see those connections across the board. And I guess that's what motivates me as a scientist very much is these connections. We see them in our history, you know, like yeah. our family tree. You know, you talk about your son, you know, I've talked about, you know, my family and so forth. But that family tree goes back to other living things. You know, when right. we follow the DNA record and the fossils. And that, again, that's another beautiful example of connections, you know. Yeah, I think you, you, you spoke about how in 2005 in, in, you know, we should back up a little bit. I should ask you about your history of geology and, um, paleontology in Pennsylvania and how you ended up in the Arctic with the discovery. But you talked about how I think it was in the Pennsylvania public schools or in, in the state of Pennsylvania, this debate that, you know, geologists and paleontologists still have to sort of put up with. But, um, and I, I myself actually went to a Christian college. I studied, um, theology for, for a time at, before I knew I was, meant to be a social worker in the secular world, but, and had a physics, uh, professor who was a brilliant physics, uh, professor also trained in, um, in, um, in philosophy. And so it was this really interesting thing. And he was teaching intelligent design and it was like, wow, like even, you know, so I know for a fact that was, and that was in Pennsylvania. So, um, what was it like for you, um, to have such a decisive, I want to say sort of giving such a decisive blow to, some of this, or is it more integrative? Do you sort of hold a a wider view? Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. Yeah, I think, you know, so it wasn't, I never really viewed it as a decisive blow, honestly. I was, it was all motivated by curiosity and a love of studying the natural world. That's what, you know, that's what it really was. I mean, the thing that's beautiful about it is, you know, we can talk a little bit about what led to its discovery, but what led to its discovery was a question, you know, how did fish evolve to walk on land? What are the details of how that process happened? And we made a very specific prediction and working after, you know, a a number of years, we, we found a fish with arms and legs. And, you know, with inside its fins, as well as other things as well. 
you know, so it was the, I don't really consider it a decisive blow because the motivation for me was not that at all. The motivation for me was to find, you know, nature and to to discover. Although I do have to say that it was frustrating for me um, having that creature, you know, the fossil on my desk before it was described and reading about, you know, lawsuits sponsoring intelligent design creations in the school. And here I had a fish with arms and legs, you know, on my desk in the lab next door, on the lab next door. You know, so it's like, and, but it's it just not just this fish. There's lots of other evidence. There's DNA evidence. There's other fossils and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of frustrating. I, sometimes I feel like, you know, I just want to get out there and, and, and talk about science and not, and talk about it in a way that, you know, about the joy of doing science, you know, because what motivates us as scientists in most cases is we just really kind of love the natural or physical world and we just want to understand it, yeah. you know, and, and it's, hum- it's a very humbling experience. You know, because you realize just how much we don't know. Um, yeah. But that's what motivates me, right? Because I'm humbled by what I don't know, so I want to know more. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a different view than some people may have about sort of like this sort of uh, the powers that be in science somehow concocting some conspiracy or something. But it's uh, it's oh, no. it's, cl- it's clearly something very humbling. And in yeah. yeah, tell me about how how, how humbling it was. Oh, you know, it's extremely humbling. You know, I look, I um. So I'll just reel back to the story. So I, ever since yeah. I was a graduate student doing my PhD, I was really interested in understanding sort of the great transformations in the history of life. You know, how did fish evolve to walk on land? How did mammals arise from reptiles? You know, these big questions. And the one that really captured my imagination, obviously, was the fish to land living animal transition because, you know, it seems so impossible, right? If you look at the endpoints, it's like, well, how did that? Everything's got to change. Well, um, so I, I took a number of attacks, but one was to really kind of try to find fossil evidence that would that would just tell us a lot about it. And so what I did, working with colleagues, you know, science is a team sport. It's not a solo act. So I was working with a number of colleagues. And Ted Deschler, who you mentioned earlier, Ted is in Philadelphia. He was a graduate student, actually, with me uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Now we're collaborators for years. Um you know, what we did is we tried to say, well, where in, where in the world could we find a creature? You know, the, one of the first creatures to walk on land. So what we did is we said, okay, we want to find a place that has rocks of the right age, you know, to hold the fossils. A place in the world that has rocks of the right type. Not every kind of rock holds fossils. That. And then rocks that we can access. You know, it's like it's, it, it doesn't mean no good if they're buried underground or on the sides of dangerous cliffs. I need rocks I can get to and that are exposed to the surface. So that's it, really. Rocks the right age, rocks the right type, rocks that are exposed. So our hunt initially led us to Pennsylvania uh, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is I had a job in southeastern Pennsylvania, Philly. Ted was in Philly. We didn't have a ton of money. And so we just wanted to you know, get in our car and turn pickles and gas money. Uh, and it turns out in Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania, there are rocks of the right age. They're about 365 million years old. Rocks of the right type. They're formed in ancient rivers and streams and nearshore tidal environments. And then rocks that are exposed. Now, these exposures weren't great. They were like where the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation decided to like make a road cut. They <laughs> so like we, blew it up with dynamite. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so we follow, you know, so basically we'd follow PennDOT around <laughs> you know, as, they, as they made new roads. And it turned out to be a pretty good research program. Wow. Uh, yeah, we found like north of Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Actually, Ted found it. Um, you know, a wonderful site which has early... Um, uh, uh, early limbed animals. I mean, really beautiful. Um, yeah, it was a pretty remarkable site, just alongside the road, and it had like wow. many species. It was just really remarkable. But you know, that, and then we found more in Pennsylvania. Uh, but it soon became clear that Pennsylvania was great, but we were limited. We were limited in two ways. First way we were limited was not a lot of rock to look at. Right? There's only so many places PennDOT's making roads. Yeah, we could look at railroad cuts or stream. But we were running out of those pretty good, and I already had two cases of Lyme disease doing that. So I'm like, let's oh, do some of So it's, um, it's too too many. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, hmm. Um, and so we 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 found actually accidentally that up in the Canadian Arctic, up in a place called Ellesmere Island, Melville Island. These are the you know near the North Pole, six seven hundred mm. miles from the North Pole. Were rocks that were formed that were older than the Pennsylvania rocks, which is good because we were actually in rocks that were too young in Pennsylvania to find the fish. Uh, they were significantly older, so about 375 million years old rather than 360, 365. So about 10, 15 million years earlier. They were formed in ancient rivers and streams, and satellite photos showed that they were um, exposed to the surface. So, like, okay, we're going to do that. 
Now, the problem with that is the Canadian Arctic is a vast place and there's lots of places to look. So it took us a long time. And we, forgive me for asking a really basic question, but when you say the Arctic, because the Arctic is a sea that's surrounded by land, but it's frozen a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So, but you're talking about the land, the landmass of Canada. Around, the landmass uh, of the New- northern tip of Canada, exactly, right okay. across from Greenland. And what you have is you have glaciers and pack ice, but then there's land up there as well. There's continent, and so in the summer, uh, you know, when it's still chilly up there, but the pack ice will recede and the snow recedes, and what you'll have is bedrock exposed to the surface. Uh, and mm-hmm. in some places you have tundra, but we can actually work on the rock. Mm. Um, no, it's peppered with, it's a landscape that's pretty much dominated by ice, but there's enough rock to look at. Oh, and the rock's so beautiful. It's, it's, mm. it's red and green. It's a gorgeous landscape when that wow. rock is exposed. Yeah. It looks like the American Southwest only, you know, like with glaciers and things. Mm. Anyway, so we started up there and it took us six years of uh, looking. Um, eventually we found a site, one valley that, uh, uh, one of the students on our expedition and um, he found a, uh, he found a, a, a place with like a smattering of fragments of fish bones, like hundreds of them piled one on top of the other. And so we crawled on that site over a number of days and found the layer that those fish bones were coming from. And it turns out they were coming from a layer that was eroding away, hence the fragments. Mm-hmm. But inside the layer were skeleton upon skeleton of fossil fish piled one on top of the other. So I was like, wow. Okay, so now we have a layer with fossil skeletons. So we exposed that layer. That took a summer. And this is, um, when you say summer, I mean, it's light 24 hours? It's light 24 hours a day. Wow. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's be so hard summer work. up in the Arctic is like, well, we're not working 24 hours a day. You have to worry about safety in that case. I'm just, but, cur- well, I'm wondering how you sleep with that and get oh, into a rhythm. <laughs> we work so hard, I sleep really well. You get into a rhythm because what you do is you force a rhythm on your body. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll wear a visor. You know, starting you, you at around nine dark. or ten o'clock, yeah. I make it dark. So I just stay yeah. on a circadian cycle. Otherwise, you just go crazy. You know, yeah, your body yeah. does weird things. So we yeah. we make a point of staying on a circadian cycle, oh, like yeah. dark cycle, even though it's just imposed on us. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but there's also lots of other tricks too for working up there because you go long periods of time without finding stuff. You can yeah. have really bad weather and get depressed. And it turns mm-hmm. out, you know, expeditions over the years working up in the poles, you know, for centuries, they realized that entertainments. And food are very important for morale. And so mm. we focus much on the cuisine. <laughs> so yeah. if you were to come with me, my first question to ask would be like, what's your favorite food? And I'd make sure I had it. <laughs> right. And it, it really does make a difference um, at the end of a long day. Oh, anyway, so we ended up finding the layer using all that those techniques <laughs> to stay positive. Because yeah. um, you do need to stay positive. Um, focus on the layer. And one day, it was uh, July 14th, uh, 2004. A colleague of mine from that removed a rock from the lair, and he said, hey, guys, what's this? I came running over, and I saw the tip of a snout of a fish. And it just wasn't any fish. It was a fish with a flat head. And I knew if it was a fish with a flat head, it's almost certainly going to be one of the kinds of creatures we're looking for. Because one of the big pieces of the transition is they go from fish that have conical heads with eyes on either side to fish with flatter heads with eyes more on top, almost like a crocodile. And you're, you're um, looking for a neck. And we're looking for necks and all that sort of stuff. And so we, um, we kind of, as soon as we saw that, we realized we had found what we were spent six years mm. and numerous sprained ankles and hundreds of thousands of dollars of grant money, uh, to find. So, I mean, um, and it could have, it strikes me that it could have been another six years or it could have been another 12 years, right? That, that it sort of, yeah, it's one of these it things. Been. Well, we tried to maximize our odds by focusing on this one layer. Yes, it yeah, could have. Yeah. And it could have been never, you know. Mm. Um, but um, uh, we ma- tried to maximize our odds by focusing on this one layer. And we were finding enough. Like I found a, like a scale of something that looked odd. And you know, we found bits and pieces that were odd and were suggestive that we'd get it. You know, like a back mm-hmm. of a jaw that didn't mm-hmm. make sense um, otherwise. And so um, when we found it, it was confirmation. And then we found about four more that summer. Um, and we've since found about 20 of these things. And we named it uh, Tiktaalik Rosia, which was... Um, the, working with Inuit up there, there was their suggestion for a name um, because we were kind of working with the indigenous community. Um, and I think we felt it appropriate for them to give it the specific name, yeah. which they did. It's a great name. Um, and yeah, and it was this remarkable thing to find. Um, you know, uh, if I was to hold in front of you the iconic specimen, which is, you know, just type Tiktaalik Rosia in like Google, you'll see in Google images. It's, um, it's about four feet long. Uh, it has a flat head with eyes on top, has scales and has fins. But if you look inside the fins, 
What do you see? You see a bone that corresponds to our upper arm, the humerus, our forearm, the radius and ulna, even parts of wrists and digits in a fin. Wow. You know, it, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, likewise, it has a neck, no fish has a neck, uh, it has lungs and gills. Um, how would you find and, out, like, how do you did figure out that it had lungs? So lungs are actually, this is an interesting story. So my most recent book is a book called Some Assembly Required, which actually looks at how we know of these things. Hmm. Um, and the, um, it turns out lungs are primitive. Most people think lungs came about when fish evolved to work on land. That's not the case. Huh. Lungs were around for eons before animals. In, took in, their first insects? In, in fish. In fish. In fish. Oh yeah, in, they were around in fish. So, so lung, there are many fish with lungs. There are a number of them alive today. Um, there's a creature in Africa called a bircher. They have lungs. Uh, lungfish, as the name implies, they have lungs. And they're all cousins of us. Mm. And if you look at the lungs, they're very similar to ours. And they develop in the same way. Similar genes, similar DNA makes them. So lungs have been around. We knew lungs have been around mm. for eons before um, the uh, fish took their first steps on land. And lungs really first appeared as sort of accessory organs to help animals breathe when the oxygen content in the water got low. Wow. They also help like animals. like a hybrid vehicle. Yeah, exactly. They also help animals with buoyancy, right? Neutral yeah. buoyancy and things. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, so lungs actually were playing a different role early on. And so we also know, so, so basically we knew lungs were already there primitively. Uh, but also if you look at Tiktaalik, in its, it has a huge rib cage, which are necessary mm. for moving lung. It has a giant space in there. So it's clearly yeah. there's, yeah. There, they had some sort of gas organ in there. But they also had gills. So we know it had gills because we can see the gill bars in the right area too. Um, and it had leg bones, um, a big hip. Um, so it's pretty remarkable. Um, and it's taught us a lot because ever since you know, the discovery of Tiktaalik, there have been other people, other teams have discovered similar kinds of creatures, which tell us a lot about how, you know, this transition happened. Um, some of them have very finger-like bones at the end of their, um, at the end of their fins. Um, so it's been really a remarkable time to be a paleontologist and mm. you know, witness all these discoveries, you know, and it to be a part like of it. Wow. Wow. And, 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 and at what point in our own, uh, evolution or let's, let's just say our embryonic evolution, do we, do we have gills and then they are, they're gone? Like you, you, you spend some time. There's a chapter, a great chapter in your inner fish describing the sort of universality of the, of all embryos. When you look at, in fact, our kids, we just walked down the road to the pool the other day and we saw, you know, some sort of like still, stillborn animal it looked like a rodent because there was a tail, but we couldn't tell what it was. And, you know, we were talking about this feature of, of all embryos that they kind of, it could be kind of anything. I mean, this one had a snout. So we, you know, it looked pretty typical of a rat or something. But at what point do we, do we have gills when we're, when we're first? Yeah. The, so if you look at a human embryo, um, a few weeks after conception, what they develop is a series of swellings in what's called the pharyngeal area, kind of on the sides of where the neck and, and margin of the face is. And those swellings are contain cells and they're, they're thick. Uh, they also have clefts between them. So there are four of these swellings, each with a cleft between them. Um, and those cells inside there actually migrate to contribute to portions of our lower jaw, our ears, the muscles and nerves and bones that supply them, our voice box and so forth. Yeah. Well, it turns out fish have those swellings too. But what happens in fish is the clefts become the gill apparatus. The swellings become bones in their head. So we share this common sort of developmental stage. We take it in one direction, fish take it in another. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's, that's really a beautiful thing because if you look at an early embryo, yeah, if I was to show you a shark and a human, they'd look more similar as embryos, but you'd recognize differences. They're not identical by any stretch of the imagination, but they do have these swellings. And yeah. so we can ask the question, what do the swellings become in people? What do the swellings become in sharks? And that just shows that, you know, like right. our ear bones correspond to gill bones in sharks. Right. You know, it's kind of unambiguous. And then you can trace the fossil record to show that as well. That's and um, yeah, it's pretty crazy actually, but it's really fun. Yeah. Um, and, and you describe also the, how, how DNA, it's not just working with bones and, and rocks and chisels that, that, that paleontology is really increasingly a, a DNA based sort of science, right? That there's this archaeology. You talk about the organizer and this, this, which sounds like a character from the matrix, which I yes. <laughs> think appreciate your humor well, in the, in your writing well, as you. well. Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, so what happens is that as embryos are built, so let's think about what, what development is, because it's really kind of beautiful. It's extremely beautiful. Yes. You know, we all start as a single cell, fertilized egg. That's a single cell. 
But you and I are talking to each other as, you know, I don't know, 20 trillion cells, something like that, all packed in the right place. So how do you go from that single cell to these 20 trillion cell, 30 trillion cell, I don't know the number, um, you know, humans, adult humans? What happens is cells divide. And as they divide, they gain new identities. They become muscle cells and nerve cells and bone cells. But they also gain patterns. You know, they form a pattern like a one bone, two bone. They form the pattern of the body. Well, it turns out science has gotten pretty good in the last three decades, um, understanding how DNA works to make those patterns, to make those cells different. So it turns out that genes are being turned on and off in the process of development, like a, and thousands of them, you turn on and off, you know, to make an embryo. So each cell has the same DNA inside of it. It's just different genes are turned on and off in different ways. So we're beginning to understand what's controlling genes being turned on and off. And in a sense, what we're beginning to understand is the recipe that builds a body from a single cell to, you know, many trillion cell body. And we're able to compare the recipe that builds the DNA recipe that builds a human to the DNA, the recipe that builds a fish or a mouse or a chimpanzee or what have you. And we're seeing, you know, terrific similarities and differences. And we're beginning to, you know, like in fossils, we can see, you know, how the anatomy changes. With DNA, we can begin to see how the recipe itself changes. And that's just terrifically exciting to be able to pull all that together. It's unbelievable. What I'm struck so much about, Neil, is the the role that the environment plays in turning on those or regulating those DNA expressions that the the field of epigenetics, which is now really coming into its fore in in mental health and psychology, this idea that depression or, you know, this, uh, uh, a traumatic incident that a mother has is not necessarily biologically passed down, but, but epigenetically passed down that the, the way that mother is, is, you know, showing up in the world and energetically, um, with the child or, you know, father or something that, that it actually changes or inhibits or permits genetic expression and personality develops and this sort of, it's just fascinating. Yeah. There are many switches that control how active or inactive our DNA is. You know, and some of them are hardwired in the in the DNA. Others are dependent on a continual interaction with the environment. You know, and it's these sort of DNA environment interactions which are so fundamental to understand. As you say, epigenetics is a field that didn't even exist in the same way 20 years ago. Right. You know, and and it's you know one of the things that's kind of remarkable. It's worth pointing out is we're living in an age of an incredible scientific revolution. You know, if you've had a uh, COVID nineteen vaccine. You've witnessed that revolution. Yeah. You know, we had the mRNA vaccines, you know, come, come to the fore. We have new technologies to understand the genome. You know, we went from, what, about a year? Less yeah. than a year. Less than to a when year. When the sequence of, when the, the Chinese published the sequence of SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes, you know, coronavirus, COVID-19, um, you know, to having vaccines tested and so forth, that's just insane. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. amazing. But those same technologies are also telling us a lot about the history of life and the recipes that build bodies. Because we can now see, we can now sequence, there are DNA sequencers that are handheld that I can take in the field. You know, yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> DNA <laughs> yeah, sequence right. is so quick. Um, and so that's beginning to tell us not only how to compare the DNA among different creatures, but again, to compare how the DNA is working during the development from egg to adult. So this molecular mm-hmm. revolution that we've witnessed you know, in the context of a pandemic is something that's been going on in science for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can edit genes, we can you know, change them, we can swap them among species. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, that's something I want to talk about in just a little bit, because I, I think you'd be really interesting to hear comment on on where we're going with all of this. But um, sonic hedgehog is one of these terms that is, I just think it's a cool term. I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about the role of that? What is it, an en- enzyme? It's in uh, DNA development or it's in RNA? Yeah. And as it's, um, so, so Sonic Hedgehog is, was the name of a, a video game, of course, Sonic, a video game character, but it's, it's also the name of a gene. And uh, it was discovered in 1993 by a number, by three different teams. And what it is, is it's a gene that makes a protein. And that protein is active during development. So remember I told you that genes are turned on and off during development as the pattern of the embryo emerges as we go from a single cell to trillions of cells. We have genes that are turned on and off that are, that are controlling the pattern. Well, one of the really important genes in that pattern forming process is a gene called sonic hedgehog. And that gene makes a protein, which is active in the embryo. And it does amazing stuff. Essentially what it does is it's turned on in the early developing limb. When the limbs pop out of the body, 
what they are is they look like little paddles and then the digits emerge and the bones emerge and so forth. Well, one of the genes that's turned on in the developing paddle is this gene sonic hedgehog. Well, it turns out it controls the number of genes and their identity, why the thumb looks different than the pinky. It controls that in development. And such that if you look at mutations in Sonic Hedgehog, what you have are mutations often in the number of, in the number of fingers and toes. Mm. And if you mm. manipulate Sonic Hedgehog in a species, you get more toes. Yeah, I can, you know, you can make 10 or 15 toes, right? Right. And right. so, um, so it's clearly, here's a gene that's really important for that recipe. Right. But what's neat about it is it's not, Sonic Hedgehog is not just present in people. It's present in mice. It's present in chicks. It's present in fish. It's present in, in sharks. Right. You know, so it's 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 a it's, it's so it's revealing. It's it's one window into saying that the recipe that builds bodies is actually shared among people and fish. We're different versions of the same recipe, right? Which right. is really 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 cool. Yeah, you know, um, and Sonic Hedgehog is part of that. Now, one interesting thing also about Sonic Hedgehog, the gene, it's not just present in limbs; it's present in other parts of the body. So it's a very universal tool to build bodies, to build our mm. bodies, turned mm. on in different places. So yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, well, it, it's, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's also involved in our evolution quite a bit. So changes in Sonic Hedgehog and how it's active, where right. and when it's active really controls what the body's going to look like. Now it's right. one of many genes that do that. You know, it's not the only one, obviously, but, um, but it's certainly a major one. Yeah. I, what would you say is, I mean, can you step back for a second and speculate on like, how how something like Sonic Hedgehog even exists in the first place? I mean, um, what I'm asking is like, is there some sort of link? Do you think there'd be some sort of link between um, what we're finding in quantum physics, um, like sort of fundamental forces in you know you know whether it's the same thing that creates a black hole is somehow you know forces in that that are fundamental in chemistry and physics that just happen to be like able to create a sonic hedgehog gene like you know is it something like that or is it something more like specific to temperature of our you know planet temperature of body or you know what i mean environmental factors oh it's a, it's a lot more prosaic than that i think mm. i mean that is i can trace the sonic hedgehog in in us to the sonic hedgehog in sharks but guess what you could trace it to with the hedgehog gene in flies and that hedgehog gene you can trace to another antecedent. So what we mm-hmm, see in mm-hmm, biology mm-hmm. is more historical antecedents that can be traced. So you have something right. that's, it's almost like the lung story, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, something is used in one way in an ancestor and, is, it, and it allows new opportunities. What you had is a hedgehog gene in creatures like flies and worms, which was used in some function in the body, but it already exists. And so much of evolution is not inventing new stuff. It's using old stuff in new ways, repurposing mm. things. Mm. So Sonic Hedgehog has been repurposed. Or it came about as repurposing, mm-hmm. you know, using old things in new ways. And that's the story of the book I just wrote, Some Assembly Required. It's about the mm. re- repurposing. And we see that over and over again, that biology really, it's hard to understand biology, why animals look the way they do, uh, and people included, without understanding history. Um and understand how things have been repurposed from flies and worms all the way to people. Mm-hmm. And that history of repurposing and duplicating and co-opting new functions and tinkering is really important. So it, basically, a, a lot of uh, biology means ha- using the old to make the new is mm-hmm. what we do. You mm-hmm. know, using old things to make the new, like a tinkerer does. You know, that's it happens at the level of DNA. And, but we also see it at the level of anatomy as well. So. I'm reading a book called Scale. I think it's just called Scale. I, f- I forget the full title. I should have that, but it's but it's really about how these these power, so-called power laws in mathematics show up in fractals everywhere, right? So the, the well-known concept of fractals being like you know, maybe the branching of a tree kind of looks like the branching of the aorta in the nervous system, or the branching of oh, or Fibonacci or, series and so yeah, forth. Fibonacci, yeah, Fibonacci. Yeah. So that just strikes me as the beauty of these layers. Um, oh yeah. You, you, you remind me also of. Uh, in your in your book, your inner fish, I I, I never really had the prescience to to have this awareness before, but I thank God that you know our heads are opposite our asses. Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad thing. It's particularly if you're a swimmer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would you know you want head forward. Let's put it that way. I mean, I never would have thought of that, Neil. Like you know, it's like that. that this there's this thing called the body plan. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah. and it makes sense. Yeah, and it makes sense. 
you want the excretion to be at the other end of than the uh, than the eating, and you you right. want in particular if you're in a flow, you want the eating to be <laughs> in leading yeah. edge. Yeah. But you also want your sense organs to be up there as well. You, you know, the yeah. business end is in the front. You know, and, and there's a reason for that, and that's why symmetry yeah works so well. Like a period in time where that wasn't the case, where organisms didn't have that that's notch right. yet, and they were all what, what? And what are some of those animals called that still exist? Radio or? symmetry of the jellyfish, yeah. cnidarians, things like that, which yeah. you know would be yeah. more of a circular plan or something like that. So. Right, right. Yeah, I'll, I'll never look down on jellyfish again because we what do we oh, we owe our nervous system or our, yes, our we do. <laughs> innervation to. <laughs> We do the jellyfish very much, yes. And mm-hmm. again, we share a lot with jellyfish. You know, just it's like pe- seeing history is like peeling an onion, right? Right, right. First, you see the primate history when you go and look in our bodies. Then you see the mammal history. Then you see reptile, amphibian, on and on and on and on. And if you start to look at proteins, you can even see it down to microbes. You know, oh, yeah. it's pretty amazing. So, so th- th- let's talk about that a little bit. This this idea of blobs or slime mold or something that 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 those those actually are they're they're incredibly important to, to us? Oh, yeah. I mean, you look, you know, you ask the question, if you want to ask a fundamental question, you know, there's a couple kinds of animals out there, you know, or a couple, not animals, there are a couple kinds of creatures out there. Um, there are creatures with bodies and creatures without bodies. <laughs> and then there are creatures with bodies that don't really have an obvious body plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are creatures like us, which have a, not only bodies, but have a very obvious body plan with a left and a right, a head in the front, you know, an anus in the back and appendages and digits and so forth. Um, so how did a body come about in the first place? You know, here's what's amazing. If you look at the history of Earth, Earth is what, 4.57 billion years old. We know that from the chemistry of, you know, rocks. And we know that from meteorites and things, you know, that we've studied in the solar system. So there's 4.57 billion years. And life got going pretty quickly on Earth, depending what evidence you use, you know, say somewhere between 4 and 3.5 billion years, life got going in one way or another. And it might have had several starts, might have only had one start, but we got going. For the first several billion years in the history of life and of the planet, it was single-celled organisms. There were no bodies. There were no bodies till about, I don't know, seven, eight hundred million years ago. There's a controversial, um, not controversial, there's a new discovery, tantalizing, of an 800 million year old body. Uh, that, that's significantly older than, you know, it's a sponge like animal. It's significantly older than people would have thought. But anyway, regardless, for the first several billion years, you had not, no bodies, you just had single cells. And then at some point, let's say about 700 million years ago, you start to see the first creatures with many cells in their bodies. You ask the question, well, how did that come about? That seems like a big change, you know, cells come together to make a new kind of individual. That's a new kind of individual, right? Um, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Um, and it turns out that if you look at it, there are protobodies out there alive today. But also we're going to ask the question, what are, what's the DNA that helps bodies be made? You know, like a body, what does it take? Well, it takes proteins that enable cells to stick together. It takes proteins to enable cells to talk to one another to communicate with one another, to coordinate in some ways. Well, it turns out versions of those proteins are present in microbes. They weren't invented at the origin of bodies. Versions of them are present in microbes doing what? Well, doing stuff that microbes do. Microbes move about, they interact with food particles. So remember we talked about repurposing and evolution. Well, bodies came about from repurposing proteins and molecules that already existed in some form in, in microbes, just using them in new ways and coordinating their function in new ways. And so that's what history does. It shows you these connections that you never would have thought about before. And also, we wouldn't have known it unless we could sequence all these genomes, which we can do now. And you right. know, that's, that's right. beautiful. So, so for all those billions of years, even just even though bodies are, are not form, forming, there's this sort of like soup that's cooking and, and we're cells are learning to figure out chemical messaging and that sort of thing. And oh, and they're pro- talking proteins. to one another. And, and by the way, they're changing the world. They're, you know, mm. changing the atmosphere. They're, you know, right. so really microbes are, are the thing, right? To make our, they, they make our world impossible. They make our bodies possible. Microbes are sort of the right. hidden, hidden secret, right? Do you, do you think uh, paleontology is in biology seeing a, re- a renaissance in, in the last 10 years? I mean, f- you know, physics used to be thought of Especially in, in the last century, physics used to be thought of as kind of like the last science, the only science, you know, with some of the discoveries coming in, in, in Einstein's time, um, in those heady days. But would you say biology is, is in, in paleontology is getting, getting more attention? 
Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, we are a total golden age. Um, that's like, you know, people walk around with doom and gloom and all this sort of stuff. We're in a golden age of science and paleontology is part of that. The golden age of molecular biology of discovery, you know, yes. Mars landers and molecular biology and gene editing and genes and understanding DNA. But paleontology is very much a part of that. And one thing that's really changed um, in paleontology is number one, paleontologists have gotten much better at finding fossils. They now know where to look really well. Number two, the technology has enabled paleontologists to do their jobs way better in ways they could not have envisioned 25, 30 years ago. That is, we now have high energy CT scanners, which can zap inside rocks and we can see the fossils inside rocks. So, you know, like pale, like I could take a rock and hit it with a CT scanner and see the fossils inside. And not only that, have those fossils digital. Now I can print them out in three dimensions. I can print them out in any size, any color. I can make it more, you know, I can post the, the 3D files online. We did that with the color. Right. If you, you know, you can go online, you can get the, the 3D files for the fossil. You can print them out, check them out. I mean, you collaboration can make is happening. Collaboration, so connection. So those sorts of things, mm. I think, really have transformed paleontology in a very big way. Um, and it transforms the way we communicate with one another, not just what we can see. But again, I can print the 3D files from a paper and, and you know, I have the fossil in front of me. You know, we did that with, with, you know, you can print out Tiktaalik and you can have the fossil version of the fossil wow. in front of it, scientifically yeah. researchable one right in front of you. Right. Um, you know, so that accelerates discovery in a very big way. We've also gotten very good at uh, remote sensing landscapes so, uh, and drone technology. So when I'm in the field, we can send drones out to see if, is it worth hiking 10 miles to get mm. to that site? <laughs> right. Or, you know, but now I can have high resolution um uh, satellite images, or I can send a drone over to, to you know save us a lot of time. Do we you have uh, Shell, Mobile, and Exxon to thank for for some of these developments? Uh, yeah, well, in a couple ways. Uh, in some ways, are pretty rare bad. So they're you know um, yeah. So Shell and Mobile's oil companies have invested a lot in understanding the geological record. You know, um, and so you know some of their data is actually out there uh, in the public sphere. Some of it, not all. Um, where, you know, we, it can be utilized to make predictions about where to look, you know, for, um, uh, for fossils. Um, but, you know, but oil companies, you know, it's what they do for a living is, right, they're looking at the layers of rock to try to figure out what's the best layers to, you know, hold and preserve accessible, you know, extractable oil and gas deposits. At a smaller scale, we're doing that in paleontology too, you know, but I, we don't do it in, in, in part. The difference is when I work on a spot and I leave it, you'll never know I was there. Yeah. You know, so, you don't, you like, don't leave a ring. I don't <laughs> yeah. leave a, anything. You don't even yeah. know. I, I moved the tent rocks. You don't yeah. know. There's no sign we've been in a place when we're right. done, uh, particularly when we're working in a very sensitive place like the Arctic. Speaking of the Arctic, do you, do you feel bittersweet about the you know global warming? Obviously, the catastrophe of that, but also the opportunity yeah. for the Arctic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, first of all, I, it's it feels. I was there. I've been there. My last trip to the Arctic, well, I've been to Antarctica twice. Last trip there was in 2019. But in the Arctic, my last trip there was 2015. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was it's crazy. Um, the uh, the amount of ice pack has reduced dramatically. Um, you know, we had, I don't think the temperature got below 40 degrees when mm -hmm. we were there, when I was there last. So it was very unnerving, very unsettling. Um, you know, the pace and the rhythm of the place has totally changed in a lot of ways. Climate change, you know, the climate change in the Arctic is the most noticeable of anywhere in the world, yeah. right? It's heated, it, it's been heating the most, particularly in the Cap of Greenland as well as in, uh, in the Canadian Arctic. And it's very noticeable in the extent of the ice cover, uh, in the, you know, migration of the polar bear and the migration, you know, where the polar bears spend most of their time, you know, now on land versus sea, which is a bit of a problem for us. Yeah. Um, the uh, you know so it's 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 actually very unsettling and scary and it's it's actually very disruptive for you know Inuit communities that are up there. The other thing that's happened is in the polar regions is they've heated up not only climate you know in terms of climate but politically they've heated up as well. Yeah. You know with climate change up there now you have new sea routes opening up through the north northern part of Russia or yeah. the northwest passage through Canada. You know, so all of a sudden, nations that normally kind of were pretty cool about working in the Arctic together, now are seeing, you know, their own individual nationalistic political interest in their own, you know, mm -hmm. their own boundaries. And that's changed a lot. 
you know, so the Russians sent a submarine to put a little Russian flag, you know, at the bottom of this piece of plate called the Lomonosov Ridge. They're claiming the area underneath the North Pole. Hmm. The Canadians and Denmark and the Danes are Canadian Danes are squabbling over a tiny little island uh, between Greenland and uh, and, uh, and and Ellesmere Island. You know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, you're going to hmm. see the political um, squabbles up there. Um, no, no um, pun intended. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah. The, the melting tip of the iceberg. The melting tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And the problem is, uh, you see that. You know, yeah. our little base, which when we first started working there a few decades ago. Was a tiny little shack, which you know, which had, which you know, could support like small prop planes. And, you know, now it's militarized. There's a military mm-hmm. base there, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, so just mm-hmm. you know, that that goes along with the warming climate. You know? Yeah, it's an unfortunate side effect. But do you, I imagine you'll see more opportunities as well for exposed rock. Well, definitely, there's definitely more exposed rock. There's just no yeah. doubt about that. I mean, it's just I, in the um, so the Tiktaalik site sits right near the head of a big glacier that's been retreating. So there's certainly be more of that rock around. It's fascinating. Really great to talk with you, Dr. Neil Shubin. Do you want to say something about your latest book and where people can find you? Yeah, so you can you can you can Google me um, uh, at my laboratory. We publish our laboratory results. Uh, you know, you just Google me at Neil Shubin, U Chicago. Uh, my latest book is Some Assembly Required, which is looking at the 4.5 billion year history of life and how the great transitions and evolution happen. A lot of we were talking about today about repurposing and genes. Um, and the, you know, the amazing technologies that are out there that tell us about history. That's, uh, so that's coming on paperback on August 31st of this year. Definitely one that I'm looking forward to picking up and, um, and can't wait to read. Appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or or hear more, get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show. And subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.